This is Like Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Thanks for tuning in today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Although conversations about coronavirus are really inescapable, there are still a lot of misperceptions and questions about the disease. For Bubbler Talk, we've been asking listeners what they want to know about the disease and how it's spread. Dr. Joyce Sanchez is an assistant professor at the Medical College of Wisconsin who specializes in infectious diseases. She joins Like Effects Joy Powers to answer listener questions about coronavirus for this special edition of Bubbler Talk. I'm sure you're hearing this every day, but there's a lot of confusion around COVID-19 in general. There's so many different ways to look at this issue right now, but I'd like to start here. Do we know how this disease developed? That's a great question, Joy, and thank you for asking that. It seems like with this particular pandemic that information sharing and the speed by which discoveries are being made, has it, it's just been unprecedented. What we know um, or have evidence of is that things certainly started in Wuhan, China, and we know that they started in connection with a seafood market in Wuhan, China. A lot of the genetic information that's been shared has linked this particular coronavirus to one that is related to bats. So um, we have pretty good evidence to suggest that that was the reservoir by which this coronavirus started. We also know that based on previous experience with SARS and MERS, that there was an intermediate host, an intermediate animal that subsequently came into close quarters with bats and subsequently transmitted the virus to people. At this point, we have good evidence to believe that there was an intermediate host um, within that seafood market. Things have not been definitively established, but enough signal is there to, to believe that. Then we know that in order for a pandemic to really start spreading, three things need to occur. It needs to be completely novel where there's no baseline immunity, which is the case for this. The second that is that there need to be sustained human-to-human transmission, which we saw hints of in December and then finally became itself apparent for sure in January when things became more public nationwide and we started looking more closely at the epidemic going on in China. And the third is that there needs to be some kind of mobility of one person to another. And with how global our economy is, how jumping from country to country, continent to continent is now much easier than it's ever been in our world history. It was the perfect storm. All of the holes in the slice of Swiss cheese uh, were met where, where this became a problem. Yeah. You know, you mentioned uh, the coronavirus is novel. And one of our listeners, Lori, she wants to know if there's more than one strain of coronavirus. There's seven different coronaviruses that we know of, four that we have lots of experience with and identified in the 1960s that caused approximately 30% of cases of the common cold. The coronaviruses that have become more problematic that cause lower respiratory tract infections, viral pneumonia, and some of the really bad sequelae we're seeing now are SARS from 2002, MERS from 2012, and and now SARS-CoV-2, which causes COVID-19, the illness. As far as 
SARS-CoV-2, what's going on with this pandemic, there's definitely differences in genetic sequences, different strains of this virus from region to region. This is a error-prone type of virus. So what happens is when it replicates, it doesn't necessarily replicate exactly the same every time. And so there are some subtle genetic differences. However, those genetic differences have not proven to translate to differences in how the virus actually behaves, such as how transmissible it is or the severity of disease that it may cause, particularly in those who are susceptible. So small changes, but in real life, how that translates, there's really no difference that we're seeing. Okay. And that gets to another question we got. Um, Connie Walker from West Alice. She wants to know if you can get the virus twice. I think a lot of us are very interested in that question. And the quick answer is that we don't entirely know right now, but we have some data that gives us some hope that there may be at least some short-term immunity after someone has contracted and recovered from this virus. Certainly our experience with the other four seasonal coronaviruses, we see some short-term immunity, but that doesn't really translate into long-term immunity over years. With the SARS outbreak, so that's probably the the coronavirus that has the most homology or genetic um, similarity to SARS-CoV-2 in terms of pathogenicity or what humans get from it. When people who recovered from the SARS virus were followed over time, up to three years, When we look at their antibody levels, which is a marker of immunity or the best marker that we have, three years out of infection, they still have antibody. And interestingly, we're now getting some very limited data on rhesus macaques where they infect these non-human primates, um, they recover and then re-challenge them with the virus and they do not have subsequent illness after that. This is a very small study I'm quoting and the re-challenge happened a month later. So how that translates to immunity a year or two or three is yet to be determined and in humans has yet to be determined, but we have some evidence to give us hope. Yeah. How, how similar are we to a rhesus macaque? Honestly, and I'm not a geneticist, but for for most people, doesn't matter race, ethnicity, gender, our genetic makeup is on the order of uh, over 90% similar, and I imagine with uh, rhesus macaques, pretty similar too. But how that translates into susceptibility to a virus, you know, they're the closest we have that are are not human, um, as far as I know. Again, not a veterinarian, not a geneticist, but uh, as close as we can get. Yeah. So a lot of people, of course, have heard about the symptoms of COVID, especially where people experience a lot of difficulty breathing. It's the reason, you know, there's so much talk about ventilators. We have a question from Christine Kuramoto. She wants to know if uh, the CPAP machine, which is used by people with sleep apnea, if that could be helpful for people who have coronavirus. It's true that the most concerning sequela of severe disease from COVID-19 is the lung issues and inability to have meaningful gas exchange where you can oxygenate your end organs. And that's ultimately what causes demise in people, even when they're on a, a ventilator. CPAP 
could potentially have some improvement in terms of encouraging that ventilation or gas exchange. The problem with CPAP is that there is some degree of trauma that happens to the lower lungs with it, particularly if not used to it. But the more concerning thing with CPAP is that it's um, use of any of these devices that we call them non-invasive ventilation can encourage aerosolization of this virus whereby virions are suspended in the air and can remain in the air for two to three hours or sometimes longer. And so we are not routinely using CPAP in hospitalized patients because of that risk. And honestly, by the time you tip over to needing more aggressive measures like non-invasive ventilation or CPAP, um, we're really talking about getting you intubated and on a ventilator sooner in a more elective, more controlled fashion as opposed to waiting where you've past that tipping point, and now we're emergently putting you on a, a ventilator. Okay. But but just to clarify, if you are someone who uses a CPAP machine regularly and you get COVID-19, um, should you continue to use your machine? So I, I'm not a pulmonologist, but my understanding from our experts in that field is if you are already on it for sleep apnea or some other sleep disorder, that you should continue to use that. Okay. So Milwaukeean Matthew Starr, he is wondering about testing. And I've heard a lot of questions about testing just in general. You know, he wants to know if or when coronavirus testing will be available to everyone, you know, regardless of the severity of these symptoms. That's an ask and a wish that all of us have. Every single medical professional would love, we'd love to be able to test every single person. A couple of things happened by which um, made that impossible at the beginning and continues to, for it to be a challenge. I think first is that we're really limited by the supply chain. So the way things work is that these testing kits come with swabs. It comes with a tube and viral media or a liquid to for those swabs to be kept in during transport, and then subsequently they arrive in our lab and they can do this PCR test where they amplify the genetic makeup of the virus to see if it's detectable. Every little component of these kits is assembled via supply chain, and if there is a breakdown of one component of that kit, then the whole kit is is non-functional. You need every piece of it. So that's the test we've been using for clinical purposes is this PCR test and lots of limitations with supply chain. There is a serology that there's been a lot of interest in. However, in the acute phase of the illness, when someone is ill over the first few days, it is not a great test because it takes several days for you to develop an antibody and for that serology to become positive. If I had to guess at what point we'd have commercial testing for everybody, I would say it's probably not going to be prime time for a very long time. The private sector has been ramping up. Our laboratory associated with the Medical College of Wisconsin is they actually have more tests than anywhere else in the state, which is great, but it's still not enough to provide testing for everybody who needs it. So we're still prioritizing people who are the most medically vulnerable, starting with those who are in intensive care units or hospitalized in their hospitals throughout the state. Um, we're testing our healthcare workforce because 
knowing who of our workforce who develops symptoms has COVID-19 has substantial implications on whether or not they go back to work. And we really need to deploy our healthcare workers in response to the volume that's been coming in. And then those who are at highest risk of developing severe disease in the community who may not be sick enough to be in the hospital. Yeah. You know, we're seeing in other countries, specifically uh, South Korea, but even around the United States, we're seeing these kind of drive-through testing sites. And people are confused about where these testing sites might be, how they could access them. And they want to know where are these testing sites in Milwaukee? Do we have them? We do. Every healthcare system has some means of testing. If Even if it's not through their own enterprise, they work with someone who does. I can speak to Freighter and the Medical College of Wisconsin in terms of pe- people who may fit the criteria or, or be sick enough or be at highest risk enough to get testing. Um, we have several in the Milwaukee area, including at our campus. A few of them are drive-through, although the one here on, on our campus is within a clinic space. I think the gold standard really is the drive-through. It uses the least amount of personal protective equipment for the people who are actually conducting the testing. The patient can stay in their car as they get swabbed. And so we do have that capability. If you have any questions about whether or not you should be tested and want to know the locations, if you qualify for testing, we have a wonderful number to call. That's 414-805-2000. That's a line that will get you in touch with someone who has been contracted through Freighter in the Medical College, and they can triage your questions appropriately and send you to the right person should you be in that category where we can test you. Yeah. So to take kind of a left turn, we have a lot of people who are writing in curious about the limitations and the expectations of social distancing. We got a question from Stephen Baldwin, who says, you know, he's heard that the sooner we start staying at home, the quicker we'll get through to the other side. But, you know, he he wants to know if that's true or if it really just makes the caseload of patients more manageable, but ultimately extends the the length of the pandemic. I'm going to call the social distancing, physical distancing, because that's what it is. Um, You can still be social virtually or from afar. This is the only defense we have against infection from spreading in the absence of a proven treatment, in the absence of an available and effective vaccine, and in the absence of having any underlying immunity to the virus. So um, the stay-at-home measures or the staying six feet away from others in public places and wearing masks when you're in a public place is the only thing we can do to decrease that person-to-person spread. And it's been very well demonstrated, not only with communities with this pandemic, but with influenza previously, that if you're distancing, you're bringing down the number of people who are ultimately in contact with someone who's infected, who can propagate it to the next person, the next person. Now, the distancing measures we're taking are probably not bringing down the rates of new illness to zero. I think that's an unrealistic expectation. The only way we could really accomplish that is by physically putting people in a bubble for two to four weeks, whereby virus is completely cleared from everybody and people recover. 
in the absence of that, this will only bring down the number of cases. And the goal of this is to bring the number of cases down to flatten the curve, not to overwhelm our healthcare systems, but it's also in the best interest of protecting you, protecting your loved ones, particularly those who are vulnerable, who are at higher risk of developing severe disease and dying. Yes, it'll spread it out. It might lengthen it. The problem is if you don't take these measures and you overwhelm the system, then we're in a predicament like Italy where you're rationing the number of ventilators, you're rationing the number of people who can get into the hospital. Ultimately, this is in the best interest of everybody. Another uh, physical distancing question. One person wanted to know about kids with divorced parents who share custody. Is it all right for them to spend uh, the weekend with one parent, then move to another home? But, you know, it's not just children of divorced parents. There are a lot of situations in which you might have to travel from home to home. Let's say you care for someone in another home, but you live somewhere else. Is it safe to do that? And what precautions should you be taking if that's something you need to do? Well, I think if you're up against a wall and you have, in terms of childcare, for example, with the scenario that you proposed here, you have to do what works. And if you don't have an option for kids to stay in one home or for you to stay at home, you know, I'm a healthcare worker. I have no choice but to come into the hospital. We have three healthcare workers in our family, and, and that's the reality that we're living with. So none of this is a mandate. We're not separating families like what was done in China. That's not something that is going to be of interest. And honestly, I don't don't know how feasible that would be um, here. What I would recommend for those who are going from house to house, if it's necessary, like this case is, is to try to minimize contact to other communities, every other community. So for the husband and and wife or ex-husband and wife, if they can stay home, great. If they can telework, great. I know not everyone has the luxury of doing that. Not, Not everyone has the luxury of paid time off either. So that is a problem. But keeping those kids within those two confined homes and absolutely minimizing anyone else who is entering the home unless it's absolutely necessary. So for example, if you have an elderly family member who gets home care from a nurse or a nanny who has to come in because you're a healthcare worker or an essential worker who has to go out for your work because it's essential, then, you know, that's what we have to do. And taking the proper precautions. So the hand washing is, that will never change. Coughing into your elbow will not change. Keeping surfaces that are high touch, countertops, laptops, phones, as clean as possible and and disinfecting them often, that also does not change. As you mentioned, of course, we're all trying to stay in our homes as much as possible. But of course, anybody with a dog is going to tell you that's not that's not completely possible all the time. So there are a lot of people who are out walking pets, and they're still coming in contact with other animals they don't live with. We have a listener, Tom Wexler, who wants to know, is there an issue petting other dogs? Let's say the owner is a carrier of the disease. They sneeze on the dog. They just pet their dog, perhaps. And then somebody else like Tom goes to pet this same dog. Can the disease spread that way? Yes, it it could. I think that's a fair question. Is that a likely driver of this pandemic? I think not. However, we've we've been surprised and we're surprised on a weekly basis of what we're learning. So, 
Absolutely. The months are getting warmer. The days are getting warmer. By all means, go outside. Um, I'm not saying not to do that. And I think the shelter in place, I'd argue, is not mandating that either. But to keep that distance when you are outside from people, and that includes pets too. The good news here is that, to my awareness, we've not seen any data where dogs can actually contract illness, but they can serve as something in the medical community that we call a fomite. A fomite is any surface by which virus can uh, be shed onto, and then if someone touches that surface and then touches their face without hand washing, can contract the illness. So I'd categorize dogs as fomites in this setting, and so minimizing dog-to-dog contact or petting another dog that, that is not in your home as much as possible. I know you can't always control dogs. In fact, most of the time you can't control your dog unless you're a much better person than I am. But if for some reason you're in a situation where the dogs are interacting, you can't control them or a dog jumps on you and, and you don't always have control over that, making sure that you wash your hands or use an alcohol-based disinfectant before you touch your face again. It really takes touching a contaminated surface like the spur of a dog and then touching your face for it to be transmitted. We've seen, of course, a number of countries going through this. I believe the the order, the stay-at-home order in Wuhan was finally lifted, so they don't have movement restrictions there anymore. Have we learned anything from other countries, and do we know, looking at what's happened there, what the forecast looks like for us? That's a great question. I think the current projections are that we're probably going to reach our peak or inflection point, at least in the Milwaukee and southeast Wisconsin area, in the next couple of weeks, so mid to end of April, potentially first week of May, although time will tell. What I feel has been very important in terms of lessons we've learned is in South Korea, how they were able to more quickly flatten their curve primarily through massive testing and contact tracing efforts. So I think Now that we've learned about the supply chain issue and how to better prepare for that in the future, I think a lot more resources, a lot more money is going to be allocated to ensuring that we have the equipment needed in order to respond in the future. And then contact trace so that we are being proactive as opposed to reacting and then being behind the eight ball. One other thing that we've learned is that in Wuhan, yeah, they've they've definitely started lifting some restrictions, but at the same time, I do have some concern that while there's still some low-level virus in communities, we may see an uptick in cases again. So I think being very diligent about slowly lifting restrictions in step-by-step, day-by-day basis reevaluating, so that way you're not left in the same situation as we were a couple of months ago. So how that pans out over time is yet to be determined, but I think we need to be mindful about how quickly we lift restrictions. Yeah, I've I've seen some murmurs that there are politicians who are hoping to lift things sooner rather than later, which, which I think has a lot of people concerned. Absolutely. And, you know, here in Wisconsin, my understanding is that there hasn't yet been a final decision on whether or not schools are completely closed for the duration of this academic year. And, you know, I think there's some benefit in just reevaluating every couple of weeks, which is the incubation period of this virus and determining um, rather than just making a blanket statement over the next two, three, four, five months. I think that makes sense. But I think it's also important to be realistic and be transparent with the community that we don't know where this is going to go and, and, and preparing for worst case scenario and to be very 
cautious and conservative in how quickly you start lifting things and not making promises on any end dates. I know we we love to have a date to look forward to that gives us hope. And so I see some value in that. But at the same time, because this virus has behaved in a way that we've never seen before on the globe in this generation, it's really important to have that little asterisk, that little disclaimer uh, where we could potentially throw a date out there, but understand that that is up to um, change as we get data in. So I'd like to end on kind of a more hopeful note. We're getting a lot of questions from people who want to help. So if you're somebody who wants to help healthcare workers, how, how do you go about doing that? There are a few really great opportunities that almost everyone can do. Certainly everyone can shelter in place. That's the number one thing that we as a public, no matter what your occupation or vocation is, to contain spread of the disease, you're going to help our healthcare workers by decreasing transmission rates so that we're not seeing a surge or influx otherwise. The second is if you're someone who has donated blood before, or even if you haven't donated blood, calling in to Versity, uh, the Blood Center of Wisconsin, and donating blood. And with these types of shelter-in-place recommendations, stay home, stay safe, we've seen a drop in the amount of blood donors and so people who really need it in the hospital who are critically ill. The fear is that we're going to run into a shortage. So if you can donate blood, do. If you don't know, ask, and we can help to make that happen. The second is if you have either suspect you've contracted the illness or have known to have contracted the illness COVID-19. And if you've recovered, we are looking for plasma donors who we can actually take the antibodies from and administer to people who are in the hospital who are acutely ill in the hopes that that can contain some of the viral replication and help speed the viral illness from uh, becoming worse. Another opportunity is if if you happen to have personal protective equipment, so let's say your business um, has N95 masks or or other masks, or even if you're sewing up your own masks, now that we're recommending masks in the community, generally cloth masks for the public, and and if you have a sewing machine or even if you don't, you can start making those. That's easy to do um, and dispersing to your community in a safe manner. That's, That's super helpful, too. If you are someone like our former RN who wants to help out, is an experienced healthcare worker, what should you do? If you're an experienced healthcare worker who's no longer in the workforce, to my awareness, at least uh, Freedom in the Medical College of Wisconsin, I don't know uh, personally if there's any mechanism to come back and, and work and get recredentialed. I know other places uh, like New York City, they're, where they've gotten absolutely slammed over the past month, are recruiting people um, who have been out of the workforce to come back. If that's something that you feel called to do, um, that's an avenue that you could certainly explore. I've personally not had um, interactions with uh, personally asking those people, but something that you could definitely do. And then educating the public. So if you're a former nurse, you have a science and medical background, debunking some of the myths that are out there. Some myths include that patients who are African-American are not susceptible. That's not true. In fact, uh, it's, it's hit those communities the hardest here in Milwaukee, encouraging the hand hygiene, encouraging people to stay home and stay safe rather than not believing what's going on. That, that's another way to be helpful, even if you're not back in the workforce per se. All right. 
Well, Dr. Sanchez, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect and answering some of these questions. Thank you for having me. Support for Bubbler Talk comes from SunBadger Solar. During this pandemic, WUWM is answering your questions about the coronavirus and its impact on the Milwaukee area. Submit yours at wuwm.com slash bubbler talk.